Zach Wells is the author of the poetry collections Unsettled and Track and Trace, co-author with Rachel Leibowitz of the children's book Anything But Hank, and editor of Jailbreaks, 99 Canadian Sonnets, and the essential Kenneth Leslie. Over the past decade, his critical reviews and essays have appeared in numerous periodicals and anthologies in Canada and the U.S., and he has won Art Poetry Magazine's Critic Desk Prize four times. Originally from Prince Edward Island, Wells now lives with his family in Halifax, where he works as a passenger train attendant and as a freelance Zach of all trades. <laughs> Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. And I should say that that, that bio that you're reading is from 2013, 2013, end of 2013 and early 2014 when that book came out. And there's been a subsequent collection of poetry, but I'm doing less freelancing and more rail, railroading these days. The subsequent poetry collection is called? Some or some, depending if you're speaking English or Latin. A lot of Latin speakers around. Harry Potter, I think, has been translated into Latin, hasn't it? Yeah. Okay. There must be a popular demand. But no, I mean, sum being the Latin phrase for I am, the book being concerned with matters of identity, I guess, if we're going to be topical. Well, we're not going to talk about sum. No, we won't talk about sum. Not this time around. Because you prefer reading criticism to poetry. I do, which is sick. (laughs) Perverse. (laughs) Let's get this out of the way off the top. Picture of you Mm. in the back of this book. Yeah. And it looks like you're wearing... Somewhat threadbare bathrobe. A bathrobe, yes. yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a leafy garden. Yeah. <clears throat> and, it, and it looks lovely and zen-like. Mm-hmm. However, within the covers of this book, you're more like a samurai warrior. <laughs> so perhaps you could explain the contradiction. Well, this is the samurai warrior at repose, I guess. That, that photograph has an interesting story behind it. Patrick Yandak took that photograph. He's a, he's a photographer who works with film primarily. He hasn't gone into the digital revolution. Uh, he's originally from the Czech Republic. He used to be you know, the official f- photographer for the president before he came to Canada. But he mm. developed a side project. Uh, after moving to Canada, doing portraits of of poets for some reason. So he was coming to Halifax, and he contacted me, and he said, could I come by and take your portrait? And I said, sure. The day he was coming by was the day after I got back from a railroad trip, and I'm always very tired. It's a long, long day before I I sleep in. He was a little early as well, so I was in my bathroom, and I saw this tall, lanky, (laughs) <laughs> Slav walking around outside my house and I said that must be him so I opened my front door and invited him in and we had a cup of coffee on my back deck and then I said well why don't I get dressed and, and uh, we'll figure out where we're going to take a photo <laughs> and he said you don't have to get dressed <laughs> so th- that's my backyard in Halifax uh, no, that's the photograph needed wider circulation so <laughs> I put it in the book uh, I'm going to drop a name here. About ten years ago, I interviewed Paul Muldoon. Ah, did you get any straight answers out of him? Uh, I think I did. But... <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of Muldoon's poetry, I have to say, but I um, really like his Oxford lectures. So maybe at least when it comes to Muldoon, I'm with you in preferring criticism over uh, poetry. Although I've always had a soft spot for criticism, obviously. 
But yeah, I, I find those those essays were really inspiring to me. I, I've since since reading them, uh, I've written a number of essays that are, I think, markedly influenced by his critical critical style and approach. And and those what is that? Well, of, of, of making connections between things that aren't necessarily immediately obvious, that are more a matter of tracking resonances to their roots between poets or between poets and fiction writers or between fiction writers. So I've written a lot of essays, uh, some prior, because I think I already had an affinity for this kind of method anyway, but some subsequent that are less of the evaluative kind of uh, good or bad mode that, that predominates in career-limiting moves and, and more of the kind of spelunking into the depths of where a given poem or a given book of poems or a given novel is coming from in terms of its relationship to other writers and other texts. Mm-hmm. So and I, I think he's just brilliant with that stuff. Well, it's interesting. Throughout, uh, and you know what? I don't even think I I introduced career limiting moves at the beginning of our interview. But let's do that because sure. it's a it's a, a book of interviews, rejoinders, essays, reviews that was published in two thousand and thirteen by Biblioasis. And throughout the book, one of the things I really liked about it is you you reference all sorts of other. Uh, poets and critics in, in making your arguments, and they are, they are arguments. Yeah, well, I, I think any criticism that fails to do that is not good criticism. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're arguing in a vacuum, A, you're likely to accidentally repeat things that other people have said if you're, if you're unaware of the milieu in which you're working. Mm-hmm. And, and B, you're just going to deprive what you're saying of substance. If, if it's just about me in the book. It's an autobiography, you know, yeah, it? yeah, Yeah, auto, or it's, you know, the sort of thing that belongs in a book club discussion rather than in a published piece yeah. of writing. You know, not that there's anything wrong with book club discussions, but the, the general public shouldn't have any interest in, in them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't use I too often in here, and I like that. But let's go back to Muldoon. He said that one must judge a poem on its own terms uh, and ask the question, does it accomplish what it sets out to, to achieve? Obviously, author intent is something that's difficult to, often difficult to yeah. comprehend. But, and, uh, and perfect attachment uh, is also a kind of an impossible ideal. This idea of, of evaluating a poem strictly on its own terms presupposes that one can suspend one's own subjectivity and that's idealistic it's sure it's a it's a noble goal (laughs) but i don't think it's achievable and so i think pretending that you have achieved it is trickery you know and so i i take issue with people who say that you know criticism shouldn't have a subjective element to it because it it, it does regardless of whether you pretend it doesn't or or not. There's no such thing as, as complete objectivity. No. You're going to react to a book one way or the other. And, and just, just the choice of what you do read and what you do write about is a product of, of your subjective valuations. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to be motivated enough to say something nice about it or say something nasty about it. Yeah. And for me, as, as I, I think I say in the introduction to the book, the motivation to say something nasty about it has... More, should have more to do with the position of that book or that author within the context 
of the literary world. You know, if it's someone that nobody knows about, if it's a first book, or, there's, there's not a very good reason to say this is terrible in public. I, and I have done that with books when, early on in my, in, when I started reviewing, and those are not things that I wish to reproduce. If there wasn't a broader reason for saying something uh, negative about, about a book, then I saw no reason to, to reproduce that mm-hmm. review. You know, I don't regret it. It was part of my learning process as a as a critic. But if I regret anything, it's that anyone anyone else had sore feelings about it, which you know has been made apparent to me from on occasion. You can't do anything about that after the fact, anyway. You just have to move on and learn from it. But. The fact is that ninety eight percent of poetry is not very good. Yeah, even of great poets. Well, I mean, even you're, even if you're talking about someone uh, at the level of Blake or Yeats or you know Elizabeth Bishop, their work that isn't as good is always worth looking at as context for the work that is great. But mm-hmm. the, the the amount of work that is great, that is truly great, is small. It's always small. It's the nature of greatness, yeah. uh, and, and it's the it's the nature of the kind of serendipity that has to coincide with talent in order for a great poem to happen. Talent alone doesn't produce great poems. There's always an element of luck there. There's an element of, of chance and happenstance, you know, whether it's biographical circumstances or or just, you know, discovering another poet whose work resonates with you. So many poems wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the relationship of the poet to some other poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if that relationship was never made, that poem would, simply wouldn't exist. Well, speaking of nasty, the first essay in the collection is a response, a rejoinder to Jan Zwicky's. It's called <laughs> A Negative Review of Jan Zwicky's Negative Review of Negative Reviewing. <laughs> <laughs> you really come out swinging. You know, she may be in the Paul Muldoon school, where if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's you know the the TLDR version of of her essay for sure. Um, and and I raise numerous objections to that. Not least of which are the practical objections. If you're a professional reviewer, if you're being commissioned and paid to write a review of a book you had not previously encountered, you cannot know before you review it whether you think it's any good or not. And if you're being paid to do it, it's a dereliction of your contract with the person who's paying you to fail to turn in a review simply because you don't like it. You know, mm-hmm. there, there are ethical obligations, I suppose, to be you know, as respectful as you feel is merited and that sort of thing. Uh, and that's something that can be worked out between the writer of the review and the editor of the review in terms of, uh, you know, moderating tone when, if and when necessary. But the idea of just shutting up is, is a very privileged one. You know, I, when I did a lot of book reviewing, it was a not unimportant source of income to me. It wasn't a huge source of income, no, never is. but it paid a number of my bills at a time when I didn't have a lot of income from my day job, which I do now, so I don't, I don't have time or energy for reviewing these days. The notion of just because I don't like this book, I'm going to pay to mail it back? Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> That's insulting to me as, <laughs> as, as, as a notion. 
And it's, it's something that comes from the professoriate, you know? you know. You have to have that kind of position of secure privilege to make an argument like that. One of the things that you suggest in the, in the essay is, and you quote Elie Wiesel, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Yeah. Analysis, even unkind analysis of faults, are one way of showing appreciation. But that's a pretty yeah. good rejoinder. Yeah, and, and in the introduction to the book, I also make reference to uh, Nietzsche, who referred to his naysaying as a yay-saying. For me, the act of, of, of engagement required to write a considered, quote-unquote, negative review is an act of affirmation and love, even if it's not experienced as such by the author of the book under review. When I write a negative review, it's because I'm offended, I think. I want to not necessarily protect the art. It's kind of a visceral reaction to an insult. Yeah, when, when, often when I've when I found books worth panning, it's because they're manifestly sloppy. And that, that is offensive. When you, when you take care and when the craft that you're, you're practicing requires the kind of care that you take, to see a, a book that is obviously rushed, quickly edited, or you know, repetitive in ways that, that aren't productive, it, it sets my teeth on it. Oh, how could you? How could you not notice that you use this same trope over and over and over again? <laughs> you know? Yeah, or that like, your arguments are faulty, or that yeah, yeah, what, yeah, whatever, whatever type of book we're talking about. But yeah, yeah. Just here, so much great art, what we now label classics, got hammered out on the anvil of the agon or public contest with little or no regard for the feelings of the individual artist. Yeah, and that's, and that's a sort of agon that takes place inside your average creative writing seminar, ideally. Mm -hmm. You know, people, are, people pile on and say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. But a lot of people in the literary world feel that such conversations should not be overheard outside of such settings, right? Mm -hmm. So, Which is kind of silly because those are often the most entertaining conversations that you'll encounter. Yeah. It, it's like the, the Angela Carter uh, quip that I mentioned in the introduction to the book that a, a, a day without an argument is like an egg without salt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it's, and Montaigne said something about that too. It's like conversation yeah. without disagreement is... Yeah. He also said you shouldn't argue with idiots. Well, I guess that's in the eye of the beholder, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in fact, you make the, the point that arguing is your favorite indoor hobby. Yeah, indoor sport. Yeah. Indoor sport. Yeah. And, and, and it's one that I grew up with. It yeah, was, it was yeah. The, it was the culture of my family. So no wonder you enjoy uh, reviewing then. Yeah, no, it was, it was a natural extension of, of uh, you know, where I came from and... My, you know, I, I started reviewing at the same time that I started publishing poetry. I'd already been working at it for some years, but it was a, it was it was really part of a, an integral part of my learning process as a writer, both of criticism and of poems. By forcing myself to sit down and, and figure out why I objected to particular things, it really helped to hone 
my own approach as a writer and editor. Well, in fact, writing a review is a really good way of gathering your thoughts about works that you've read and why you like something and why yeah. you don't like something. And it's a self-education. And it requires close and repeated reading. I don't, maybe there are reviewers out there who can, who can write a good review after reading a book only once. I certainly can't. Anytime I've reviewed a book, I've done one read without taking notes, just for my initial impression. And then a second, very slow, very close read that will often involve multiple readings of individual poems within that book. Uh, so by the time I sit down to actually write the review, I've read some of the poems five or six times, and I've read all of them at least twice. Given, yeah. how, given how much time these writers put into these poems. It was a lesson I learned in high school from my, from my OAC English teacher, Drum Lister, in grade 13 that if you're going to write about anything, you have to read it twice. He said that was non-negotiable. Yeah. And I, I expect a lot of people write reviews in a more slapdash manner. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that I don't have time to review anymore, because it t even to write a 500-word review, it takes me a considerable amount of time. <laughs> well, that's the sort of sad thing about it. You can't earn a living being a critic anymore. No, no it's not just, readily. Uh, and the amount of time you put into a 500-word review is, if you're serious about it, just it's like a what, a penny a word or something like that, it's, if, if that's what, you know, if you're getting paid for, that is, and, and a lot of reviews out there are, you know, the reviewers aren't getting paid. Yeah. It's almost like a service to the... Yeah, and I did a little bit of unpaid reviewing early on, but very quickly abandoned that, yeah. and I got to the point where I, I wouldn't review below a certain per word threshold, like... Arc, Arc Magazine I did a lot of reviewing for, and uh, they paid $80 for 500-word reviews, and that was kind of my benchmark. If you were below that, yeah. forget it. <laughs> it's really not worth it to me. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to this, I'm not going to go through each, <laughs> each essay, but, but I will the ones that, that piqued my interest. They all piqued my interest, actually. This is a, this is a fun read, for sure. This is really an entertaining book. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you find it so. And it was something that um, when we did the the promotional tour for this book, it was me and uh, Jason Guriel and Anita Leahy all had books out around the same time. And I remember at the event in Hamilton, uh, which was moderated by Amanda Jernigan, Kim Jernigan was there, and uh, she made a point of saying how funny my book often was. And I mm -hmm. said, "Thank you so much for saying that." <laughs> you know, you often just hear. Uh, you, you hear the sort of noisy minority who, who think that you're just like this angry person. Yeah, or yeah, no, they pigeonholed <laughs> like, you, haven't they? Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. No, no, there's Have you a, read there's... anything I've written? <laughs> yeah. Well, the second essay, now, the word that comes to mind for when I read, and I know Andre oh, Alexi, yeah. <laughs> uh, not that well, but I've, you know, I've interviewed him a couple of times and, and had some exchanges with him and... Uh, Snide. Yes. Yeah, oh, that, that is definitely the t t tone of that piece. <laughs> so he wrote a, uh, it was an essay for Walrus that... Yeah, well it was, it was an excerpt from a book that was published yeah. in the Walrus. He, yeah. didn't, he didn't write it purposefully for okay, the Walrus. Okay, okay. Yeah. And I, I agree with you, and it was a bit kind of rambling, and it uh, went on off at a few different tangents. But I, I thought that it was from the heart. 
Oh, it was absolutely and, from and, the heart. And also, just, he's committed to the practice. Yep. And genuine. Yep. No, I don't. I don't question the authenticity of that piece at all. I just think he should have used his head more in writing it because a lot of the arguments simply don't hold water. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are pure speculations, like the stuff about Ryan Big being this product of John Metcalf. They don't even know each other, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was based entirely on the fact that Ryan Big had published in CNQ, which is edited. This you know the editor of CNQ at the time was John Metcalf, but the reviews editor was Michael Darling. And I had already published reviews in CNQ without having any interactions with John about Mm -hmm. any of the content. So like Andre was just so far out on a limb in what he was saying that Mm -hmm. it it had to be pointed out that his argument was ridiculous. He he turned John Metcalf into this all-powerful force for evil (laughs) in his imagination. And it was just, it was was nutty. (laughs) He makes that point about how, how negative reviewing, subjective reviewing is really more about the reviewer than about what's being reviewed. And he's, he's asking for more context. Yeah, and, and at times that's been the case. And I know Ryan Big was guilty of that in, in reviewing uh, Leah McLaren without disclosing the fact that there'd been a, you know, that there was a personal animus at play there beyond his dislike for the book. I think his dislike for the book was probably authentic, but his motivation for writing the review may have had something to do with something else too, right? I have spent so much time on the structure of your piece because I believe that this major flaw of your essay is the chief begetter of its manifest infelicities. <laughs> I, I didn't like that. Oh, I do. I think that's funny. <laughs> no, that was condescending, I think. Oh, the, I mean, that's the whole Make no mistake. The You're whole trying per- to piss someone this off is, here. This is a persona piece, this essay, and... You know, it's it's a fiction, really. Mm-hmm. This is this is a kind of a short story. This this letter to Andre Alexi. He he didn't actually. The, no. the fiction behind it is that he had submitted this essay originally to CNQ for publication, and this is the, its rejection letter. And of course, he didn't. No, he didn't. No, no, not at all. It's yeah. it, it's a it's a fictional conceit, and, <laughs> and, no, and, again, and and the speaker in this is is a fictional conceit too this is like this is me it's designed to piss him off yeah and this is the 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 snideness in me ramped up to 11 because i mean i won't pretend that that snideness doesn't exist in other pieces i've i've written when i feel it's merited but but this was yeah very intentionally and you can take issue with the fact that i did it intentionally but and here's another one all of these leaps stretches elisions omissions and errors of fact accumulate to convince this reader that you have a very limited knowledge of the field you're writing about. <laughs> uh, you're calling him an idiot. Um, in, well, in that, in that essay, I'm calling him an idiot. I, I wouldn't uh, extend yeah. it beyond And I think pages, that might but be... I, and I think we're all idiots from time to time in, in things we do and things we write. The, the smartest among us do idiotic things. God knows if I had a catalog of all the idiotic things I've done in my life, it would... I think part Take of this, though, three is, inches tall. you know, the criticism from uh, female readers who might see this as kind of a macho male pissing, mm. pissing match. Yeah, and that would be a fair criticism. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't gainsay that. One of the things when I was 
And in researching the book after reading it, I wanted to read some reviews of it. I didn't come across too many reviews. There's a, no, a couple of obscure been. blogs that did short pieces, but that must have been a bit... Was there much of a response? No, not that I've been privy to, anyway. And my thinking is, you know, you've taken to task some pretty important Canadian poets, taken them down. Why didn't anyone come to their defense? Well, you know, as the pieces in this came out piecemeal over years, there was more response to them, I think, than there sure. has been since they came out collected in a book. Yeah. And that's a kind of a funny thing now, where especially if something is online, it can go viral, whereas putting it in a book is almost like a vaccination. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's just that the, the heat of the moment had passed by the time most of these things came out in their book. The energy's already been spent, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've, I've come across from time to time in, in doctoral dissertations and things, responses to particular pieces that are, you know, they're being discussed. Mm -hmm. Usually as, a, you know, an example of someone who just doesn't get the wonderful author under consideration in this thesis kind of treatments. You know, so the responses are out there. They're scattered and mute, maybe. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the book certainly didn't light any fires when it came out. Yeah, I mean, that's the sad reality, I guess, is that, first of all, poetry is, you know, I mean, there's not a huge audience for it. And second of all, criticism of poetry, mm -hmm. I suppose, is yeah. maybe even less popular. Cert a certain uh, genre of critical essay, especially if it's published online, seems to generate outrage. Uh, mm -hmm. these days, you know. Anytime Jason Guriel or Michael Lista publish something, it seems to, like, have an incendiary effect upon the entire literary world. <laughs> I don't really get that. Well, let's face it, sometimes they put stuff out that's just designed to get that. Uh, well, that's part of the reason I don't get it, is some of it is so obviously baiting that, yeah. uh, that the people, I think, are, are really dumb to rise to that bait. And it's got to be a source of glee for the people who are writing and publishing these things that so many people are clicking. That's what keeps them employed. And, and largely these essays, the, the, the sort that I'm talking about, are pretty light fare. They're not really deep. They're not really no. substantive. They're, they're no. like breezy opinion pieces, right? They're not, not, it's not heavy-duty criticism. Speaking of Michael Lista, the piece that he wrote for Canada Land... That was heavy criticism. And it got produced yeah. some, some results. That was it? a really fine piece of investigative journalism. It, it, it was very interesting to the extent that it brought out the kind of tribalism that is latent in so much of the politics in the literary world where people who would not otherwise be siding with someone who's selling arms to the Saudis or being any part of that economy are jumping to Griffin's defense with kind of moral gymnastic arguments about, you know, someone's going to make these parts anyway, kind That's of right. thing. We may as well make the money, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's funny, uh, years ago I interviewed Scott Griffin uh, about his, his memoir, and I, I think I brought up blood money. It never really got anywhere, though. It was common knowledge that he was you know, investing in this company. Yeah, and, and that's what some people said when this piece came out, was that, well, everybody knew this anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, nobody was talking about it. It's online, isn't it? It's CanadaLand.com. That's exactly what you want as a journalist or as, a, as an essayist. He's highlighting something that's 
He's highlighting a significant moral problem. And he got some immediate results from it. Yeah, the response to that, the concrete response to that, I think is an index of the success of that piece of journalism. And also a tribute to uh, Griffin, I think. Maybe not a tribute. He sees the truth in the matter. Yeah, but I I don't think divesting from that hurt him materially, you know. (laughs) But he didn't have to do it. No. In the book, we're in pretty calm waters so long as I like or am am not familiar with the poetry under examination. But in here, I think you come across this being erudite, tightly argued points, convincing Things get turbulent, however, when you turn... I'm reading here from a little note that I made. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to poems that I'm at least familiar with and that I don't like. So in other words, you know, I'm arguing with some stuff in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you and I have had some good arguments over the years. Yeah. I remember an argument you and I had over a Thomas Hardy poem, yes. poem that I thought was crap, even though I'm a great Thomas Hardy fan. Right. And you loved. That's, that's <laughs> true. Now here, the informed polemical language, to me, rings hollow, and it loses its authority. It sounds pretentious. However, however, Wells is so well read, (laughs) and because he can tell the difference between, you could fill in the technical blanks, the tricks that poets use, Mm, mm. I... uh, can't and don't dismiss what he says, where with others I might. There's nothing worse than hearing some yob at the art gallery (laughs) spouting off about how she knows what she likes, and this ain't it. (laughs) Education does inform taste. It may not convert right away, if ever, but it does increase appreciation and it help one to make informed judgments. This is why it's useful to read a book like Wells's if you have any affection for poetry. And, you know, sparking disagreement is one of the things that I hope to achieve by exactly, publishing yeah. any piece. Well, this is funny here. You wrote a piece on Carmine Starnino's A Lover's Quarrel. Yes. And incidentally, you used the word vigor, and I hate that word. You use vigor throughout. (laughs) Vigor, there's a couple of them, actually. There's vigor, there's chops. It seems that poetry critics in Canada like to use the word chops. Yeah, I think that's a a fair editorial critique. And elided is another one that uh, seems to me to be overused. This is is one of the dangers of publishing a book of of things that you've written individually in piecemeal over a (laughs) period of time is is that your your uh habits habits and predilections become magnified once you put these things beside each other (laughs) another problem is starnino's failure to quarrel with certain poets most notably michael harris eric hornsby and david solway all three of whom have been friends and mentors to starnino he does his most painstaking and sensitive close reading on poems by each of these three, and his admiration for their work is plainly sincere, but I can't help wondering if friendship hides their flaws in Starnino's blind spot, precluding the kind of sensible balance to be found in his evaluations of Utrum, Bach, Lilburn, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, with that said, 
I flip back to your your essay on Harris and Norman. Yep. And you rave about these two. I, I like those books a lot. I think to an excess. So now, are you friends with, with them? I, uh, I am not friends with Michael Harris. I uh, knew him casually when I was at Concordia here in 2000-2001. He taught a course at Concordia, at an undergrad course, which ran at the same time as a grad course that I was in. And those classes got out at the same time, and, and some people would adjourn to McKibben's Pub for a pint afterwards. And So I, I would... I had a passing acquaintance with, with Michael from those days. More recently, like last year, I went over to his house for supper once. That's pretty much the extent of my relationship with Michael. Peter, um, I have uh, come to know better. He, for a brief time, lived in Halifax with his wife, Melanie Little, who's also a writer and an editor. So I've, I've seen Peter socially on several occasions, and we've corresponded a bit. Let me just give you a specific here, then, on... Uh... And again, this is my criticism of it. You, you seem to be almost hyperbolic. Your praise, you're talking about a specific poem. Maybe it's called Concentrate. Does that ring a bell? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of Harris's. Of Harris's, yeah. yeah. You first of all talk about the oral, the poem begins with an oral feast. And, and this is lovely, I'll, I'll read it. With dusk come creeping as it does across the provinces, Raccoons descend from their roosts in the trees. Moose big as Ozymandias settle up to their bellies in water and begin one huge scoop of tongue at a time to drink the lake. And you say, free verse doesn't get much more gorgeous than this with all the subtle sonic densities of consonant and vowel. Yeah, I, I stand by that. I, I think that's a, a, a sublime passage. Why? Because of the, the uh, qualities of precision in both the description and in the, the sound patterns present in those lines. You know, I'd have to s sit down with it and, and dissect it at length to be a little bit more uh, precise than that right now, but like come creeping across that repeated hard C pattern, which picks up the initial hard, the K sound in dusk, dusk and does. I, I, I am a particular um, sucker, and you see this in my own uh, verse and in my affinity for Gerard Manley Hopkins, and for those kind of Anglo-Saxon patterns of parallel uh, alliteration. So a line like that has my ear right away with dusk come creeping as it does across the provinces, across the provinces, that raw, raw. Yeah. Uh, raccoons, again, picking up the R sounds from the previous, the R and the hard C sounds from the previous lines, descend, dusk does descend, from their roosts, again, the R sound and the OO sound that's also from raccoons, in the trees, again, the R sound, and the E sound that's in creeping. Moose, again, raccoons, roost, moose, big as Ozymandias. And that's just such an unexpected simile. I'm, I'm a simile skeptic. If, if there's a simile in a text, I, my automatic predisposition is to hate it. But big as Ozymandias, that's good. 
<laughs> and I have why's, a hard time. Why is it good? I think it's good because it's both surprising and perfectly opposite. And that's something I say in my essay about Don Mackay is that his, uh, his figures are often only surprising and not also opposite. And okay. that is, the, that is the, the alchemic magic that happens in a good simile or metaphor, is, is hitting on something that no one has thought about before, mm. but that you can't deny is an absolutely perfect analogy. It makes really good sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Settle up to their belly, so that eh, mm. yeah. eh, in, in water. And so, what, water you... picks up provinces, picks up a cross. These are the things, music-wise, in lines of verse that really ring my bells. Okay. And so, and what I find really fascinating about this poem is that he totally sabotages that music later. That's... And when I first read it, I was like, "What the fuck is going on yeah. here? Yeah, how did that. how did this fall apart so badly? How could the same poet have written this crap and those <laughs> gracile opening lines?" But you know what? That's where I'm talking about hyperbole, because here it is. It's uh, Harris falters, okay? Mm -hmm. But just as you're settling in to enjoy the music, Harris falters with, But once the wire is set and the rigging steady, there should be little to make you hesitate but a want of confidence. There's nothing wrong with that in my mind. And you're you're calling it's, it. It's the hesitation. Uh, they're, they're, what happened? There's a. This is so wordy and clunky, so clogged with articles and prepositions, so yeah. utilitarian and provisional, and it gets worse. I'll read that too before you before it you does jump, get before worse. you oh my God, does it get worse? Unless you were to slip into musing about the various malaises of domesticity, say the kids and their adventures. In the quotidian messiness, it's it's not messiness; it's messinesses. Sorry, it's, it's plural. Me, sorry, you're right. Okay, <laughs> let, let me we'll scratch that. The quotidian messinesses, the ex-wife, money, and whatnot. Sex is a distraction. You might as well admit that once and for all. What with its swoons and perfumes, its loosenings and tightenings. Admit that one then, and then move on. I know you're making the point that he's intentionally fucking up. And, and how do you know that he's intentionally fucking up? Well, one, one doesn't know. I first heard him read poems from this book in the early 2000s, and then it came out in must have been 2011 or something. This book was in, the, in, in making for 15 plus years. And I, I knew that he was not very productive during that time. Like the poems came very slowly, one at a time, spaced out. So these are things that I knew beforehand. But I also know from just, without knowing that a priori, I know from reading the text that this mirrored formally what the poem was talking about. It was about these kind of loosenings and tightenings, right? Yeah. And the loosenings and tightenings are built into the poem form-wise. When a poet decides to use a word like messinesses, he's intentionally being messy. <laughs> A, a, poem who, a poet who's capable of writing those opening lines to then use the word messinesses, there's no way that that's just a oops, 
slip. Didn't think of a better word. No, no. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't see, have a problem with messinesses. Oh my god, it hurts me to hear it. <laughs> Every time it was like, ah. <laughs> well, and, then what you say here is just when he talks about losing concentration on the tightrope. Yep. And what is a long free verse line but a tightrope? Because this is literally a poem about walking a tightrope. Yeah. That's literally the content. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, his own line goes slack. And when he returns to concentration, the line tautens again. I don't know. I, it seems to me that you're exaggerating the tautness and the tightness. Or have you, have, you, re- the have you read the whole poem? No, I haven't. Okay. No, okay. Um, I would invite you to, and maybe... Maybe that would convince you. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the difficult things about talking about these things in our view is like, True hopefully enough. it will, you know, if, if it spurs agreement, hopefully it will cause someone to read the poem. Uh, if it spurs disagreement, likewise. Uh, and then the reader is in a position to judge for themselves whether I'm full of shit or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. I'm only reading what you're presenting. Here. Yeah. And and, and, and and as I said, it just seems a bit hyperbolic. Yeah. And when I, possible, I prefer to quote entire poems, but yeah. brevity often forbids it. There is a bit of an anthology of poems in, in the pages of Career Limiting Moves. I've been able to sneak in some entire texts, but mm-hmm. that was a longer poem, and it's very hard to justify putting in a, a I don't know if it was a 50 or something line poem, entirely into uh, into a review but I would love to you know but I've had editors hack away at long quotes <laughs> yeah. because they have their prerogatives too and I understand that from having rev- uh, edited a lot of reviews too but I, I, I that to me it was a, is an absolutely brilliant formal performance brilliant for the for the for the guts it takes to undercut itself and, and trust the reader to figure out why it's under. Because my initial response was just like, bah, what? <laughs> yeah. And then when I saw, saw the pattern of mm-hmm. those loosenings and tightenings, I thought, this is very, very clever. And not merely clever, but clever in the service of an idea. This is what you want in poetry, right? Yeah. Yeah, of an idea, of a feeling, of, of all these things at, at once in, in the best of poems. Then the next uh, chapter or the next essay, you uh, get back to your, your normal self <laughs> and just waste Ann Simpson's loop is what you do. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, and that was in the context originally of that book being on the shortlist for the Griffin Prize. Mm-hmm. I, I had originally uh, reviewed, as part of my column with Mezenev at the time, uh, all of the books on the shortlist. Uh, one of those books I thought was much better than the other two, Die Brandt's Now You Care. Mm-hmm. Um, in retrospect, I think I liked it more in that context than I, than I do as a book on its own. The other book, which was, which was much worse than Simpsons, uh, was Leslie Greentree's Go-Go Dancing for Elvis. And I think, did Simpson win that year? I think she might have, actually. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure I read it. Anyway, it, when it came time to selecting pieces for this book, I, I took Simpsons out of that original omnibus because a i i really don't think leslie greentree's book ever should have been put in the position of being on that shortlist Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was really bizarre 
that it was there because it was so bad. But, but, I, but, but she wasn't an author also of the kind of prominence that, that I felt it reasonable to preserve my, my evisceration of her book. Well, you, don't, you book. don't just eviscerate Simpson's book. You go after her as a poet. As a poet, she, like Anne Michaels before her, is a tourist in the realms of human misery and suffering. Well, and that was based on the poems included in the book, you know. And mm. and there, that was the thing about that book. As a, Leslie Greentree's book, I just thought was not very good, mm. not good at all. This book was a book by someone with talent. Uh, I think there's undeniable ability in Anne Simpson, but. I found so many of her subjects and her treatments of her subjects, moreover, to be of this kind of catchpenny, tearjerker kind of material. Like I found it emotionally manipulative, and I felt it found it because they were often referring to actual events, disrespectful for the to the people who were actually involved in those events. Uh, you know, nine eleven being one of them. There's a crown of crown of sonnets in her book about nine eleven, and it. it it turns it into this, kind of, and, and this is where, you know, Fugitive Pieces was often criticized by this Anne Michaels novel for aestheticizing the Holocaust. And that's what I, f I felt strongly that Anne Simpson was doing in her book, was aestheticizing the 9-11 attacks. Yeah. And uh, it, it really rubbed me yeah. the wrong way. It feels that way to me. Mm -hmm. I don't doubt that... On her part, there's there's sincerity in that. I'm not saying she's cynical, but I'm saying that someone should have stopped her from publishing these poems, because I think I think we've all done. I've I've made so many failed attempts to grapple with significant real life events, and fortunately, I think I've managed to avoid publishing any such things because I I it, it's it's very very difficult to do these things justice and I think she and clearly her publisher and editor thought she had done them justice but you know it, it uh, to me it, it felt gross this uh, okay so we go from Simpson now this is I suppose this is the, the essay I had the most trouble with and that is Jabbed with Plenty, Peter Van Turn and the Canadian Condition. Mm -hmm. So here you, you go off against Margaret Atwood, and you use the word elides, I see here again. <laughs> it's a legitimate uh, English word. I know it is, it's just overused. <laughs> but the straight line it takes elides the essential curviness of the literary enterprise and thereby excludes much undomesticated writing that doesn't fit into the established paradigm, whilst promoting less accomplished uh, but thematically correct texts to canonical status. She admits that. Mm. Yeah. And, she, and in fact, and you say this isn't a very uh, enjoyable read, it is. For me, anyway, it was. It's a. It's a sparky. It's, it's, yeah, it's it's very it's readable. Fun, and she doesn't take herself too seriously. And I think she's trying to stir up some shit by saying that you know that the Canadian literature is it's depressing. Yeah. It, and it, and and in fact, if you read the very last page of the book, she talks about 
it's a tough tradition to be saddled with. Any map is better than this is what she's providing. Any mm. map is better than no map, uh, as long as it's accurate. And knowing your starting points and your frame of reference is better than being suspended in a void. A tradition doesn't necessarily exist to bury you. It can be used as material for new departures. And then she mm -hmm. goes on to talk yeah. about jailbreaks, which I thought was interesting because you came in with a book based on that Margaret Avison uh, poem. poem. Yeah. As an escape from our old habits of looking at things and a recreation, a new way of seeing, experiencing, imaging, or imagining, which we ourselves have helped to shape. Yeah. So this is a call to action, is what I see this as. And you kind of crap all over it as saying that we're not like this, and, and maybe you're taking the bait. Well, I, I, you know, I, I do take issue with some of the ideas in that book, but what I take issue with more than the ideas in the book is, is despite her own caveats about this book, influence that's, that it's had on how Canadian literature is read and studied and disseminated. I don't think she ever intended it to be so influential. In fact, I'm, my understanding is that it was intended as a kind of a, a promotional thing to help move some backlist titles. It was designed you know, like, to get them out of debt and it succeeded marvelously. So it was never it was never supposed to be kind of any more than a, a text of its moment, but it's been reprinted how many times? Yeah. It's still in print. Now we see these kind of thematic approaches to Canadian literature uh, still followed in, in, uh, in the work of many academic critics. Thematics can be interesting, but if it's the only basis for which you're studying a book, mm -hmm. then it's a problem because it's, it becomes a, a, a reason to preserve mediocre books <laughs> because they fit in with, with the theme of survivalhood or what have you. But I also think survival is not a, is not a particularly Canadian theme. Well, she's picked it up. I mean, I think she's, she did a lot of reading, and uh, I've taken my examples where I've found them not through study or research, but in the course of my own reading. So she's coming out and saying this, you yeah. know. Oh, yeah. So anyway, I, I just think it's a brilliant spur. Uh, well, I, I mean, to, it's, in, it's in that like regard... It, it, what a gadfly would do. In, in that regard, it, it, it worked as such yeah. for me. It operated very nicely as a foil for what I perceived to be Peter Van Turn's responses to the, the prevailing uh, embrace of victimhood and, and gloominess. <laughs> yeah. We don't have time to get into a, an argument about Van Turn. You know, I admit you've spent a lot more time with the poems than I have. You're saying they deserve more attention. So, well, as we were saying off off tape beforehand, you know, so many of these things are a matter of taste, and if I've spent more time with the poems, it's because they they commanded me to spend more time with them. They clearly haven't you, and and that's mm -hmm. absolutely fine. It's never been a goal of mine to convert everyone to the poems and poets that I love, more to try and uh, shine light on those poets so that the people who would feel the same about them as I do will find them, hopefully, yeah. through my assistance. Would you say uh, he's a poet's poet? Like, would you say that, that, that a poet who knows his or her craft really well would appreciate these more than someone like me? Yeah, maybe. And there, there are very few poets 
who aren't poets poets uh, insofar as full appreciation mm -hmm. of yeah. all of the subtle nuances of poetry almost require expertise. Uh, there are some poets who are sufficiently subtle in their in the way that they cover their technique, someone like a Robert Frost, mm -hmm. uh, someone like yeah. an Edna St. Vincent Millay, you know, mm -hmm. these poets who have had enormous readerships. It's not that they aren't just as subtle and just as nuanced as other poets, it's just that the surface qualities of their work are such that people find them uh, more welcoming or less intimidating or easier or they aren't, but, but they can be read on that level. Yeah, yeah. Um, I in fact, you say somewhere that surface is everything. John Ashbery said that. It's from, it's from his poem, Self-Portrait uh, Self in a Convex Mirror. And there's much to be said for that idea in, in poetry, that any talk of something below the surface is, is almost an imagined thing. It's something that we read into the surface of the text, that it isn't actually present there, but it, it comes out of our interaction with the words before us. And someone like Van Turn, he is not a concealer of technique. He is a revealer of technique, and that technique is often quite baroque and over the top, and that has earned him detractors over his over the course of his publication history. There are a lot of the reviews that I quote in my essay from the '80s, when when his work was first being published, were 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 befuddled by it thought it was overdone, and, and, and that is, I think, a legitimate response to his work. It's a subjective response. Some people, like I was saying earlier, you know, if, if you're like me and you really respond to the Baroque overdoneness of, of Gerard Manley Hopkins, you're far more likely to find some, some virtue in the work of Peter Van Turn than if you favor the kind of simpleness of, you know, the, uh, the, the Ben Johnson, Philip Larkin, type poets who, who write more for a kind of transparent clarity and less for uh, fireworks. But there's a lot of fireworks in Van Turn's work, which is what makes it kind of un-Canadian, quote-unquote, because uh, that, that hasn't been the predominant style. It certainly goes against all our national myths about how, you know, polite and self-effacing Canadians are supposed to be. Irving Layton wasn't. No, Irving Layton was another person who... who was very strongly setting himself against that grain. Fireworks, can, can you just expand on that a, a little bit? You know, a, a poem that, uh, one of the poems that I analyze at greater length than that is a poem called Mountain Leaf, which is not so much fireworks, because it's a subtle little sketch of a bird pushing a leaf about, but the way he does it is so obsessive and so it draws so much attention towards the manner in which he's writing. He, he uses the same word ends, it's a sonnet, 14 lines, but he uses the same word ends, not rhymes, actual words yeah, to yeah. end line one, line two, line three, line four, line five, line six, and it's just, it, it's, it's a crazy virtuoso piece of monosyllabic collage. <laughs> And, and you cannot ignore the technique in that. And, and with Margaret Avison also, you can't ignore the technique because she, you know, the, what, the th sort of things she did with syntax are so far distant from the way that uh, people speak to each other. 
that you know you can you couldn't pretend that this was just like uh, someone someone talking to you at a bar or something as we as we often as Canadians value the work of Purdy for being Purdy, like, oh that right. guy who talks to us in a bar the drunk guy which is an unfair kind of caricature of Purdy's work too because yeah. I have a lot of time for a lot of Purdy's yeah. work in fact you take Starnino to task for that mm-hmm. here just on Van Turen uh, again. He, he thereby comes closer than almost any modern era poet, with the possible exceptions of Clare, who you love. The, the mm, John, yeah, John Clare is one of my great favorites. And Hopkins, to defying uh, Wittgenstein by bridging the gap between language and the world it is supposed to represent, and to fulfill Archibald MacLeish's axiom that, uh, that a poem should not mean but be. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that just holds for Van Turn. That holds for all sorts of poets. Yeah, and, and you know, hearing that now, I I think it, it reflects how caught up I was in those poems at the time. And and you know, with uh, some sober sober hindsight, I would say that's a bit of an overstatement. And mm-hmm. there's certainly other poets that, that you could put in that category. But but it it remains true that I think that in his best work, he had this remarkable capacity for representation of the world not just talking about it but of actually making a poem closer to being the thing he's talking about than most people can ever hope to achieve yeah again i i wasn't totally convinced about yeah you're saying here that the sharp focused zoom of the vision and inobtrusive colloquial fitness of the diction create the illusion that there's no text mediating between the reader and the event described i don't know I still saw the text. <laughs> anyway, to, to me, to, what I'm saying there more than anything is that when I'm reading that, I'm entering into the... And this is a poem about, uh, about dragonflies yeah. fucking. <laughs> and it's, a, it's actually, I think it's probably, of the, of the poems that I've read of his, I, is one of my... You know, to boil down what I mean there is like, I, I feel like I'm there. I feel like I'm watching this on video as, uh, as yeah. much or more as reading a You're poem. You're totally caught up in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a bit like I, I felt that when I was reading Tolstoy years ago. I lived in that world. I was just, and I couldn't wait to get back into it. Yeah. Uh, just winding down here, I just want to return to that. A poem should not mean but be. When a poet says something like that, and Wallace Stevens, I think, said something similar, and there's a variety of different poets that have said that, it's basically saying... Fuck off. <laughs> don't, don't try and analyze my poetry. It's like, it is what it is. Yeah, to some extent. And, and I've, always, I've always chuckled about that, that poem of McLeish's because, you know, it's often, it's often so often quoted, but it, it's, it, it is self-contradictory because it's, it's telling you something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. it, is, it is meaning. That is a poem and it is meaning. But, I mean, I think there's... Uh, quite a greater tendency now for poets to be expected to explain their work or Mm -hmm. poets themselves to be critics and comment on other works. The poet critic. I mean, I I think that a poet that's worth his salt or her salt is a really good critic. Should be. Yeah, at at least... uh, Internally, if not in terms of writing essays and reviews, but they have to be, yeah, 
to, to in order to recognize problems in their own work and solve those problems and, and everything else. There's there's a critical dimension to poetry that uh, is inalienable. And I see the poor critics all the time in, in the poets whose books have way too many weak poems and then just, you know, over-inclusive and make really poor, questionable decisions within certain poems and this sort of thing. And I think if you were a better critic, you would see why that's wrong. And maybe I'm wrong because it's all you know, subjected to some extent, but but uh, to a certain degree, you can pretty much verify this with data. Uh, you know, we know, every poet knows that, that the vast majority of poetry is dross and a little bit. So if you're including 100 pages in your book instead of 60 pages, it almost has to be that, that the 40 pages on top of that 60 shouldn't be there. Unless there's something about your book, like it's a hybrid kind of narrative long poem structure that that requires a certain sprawl to it but if it's an if it's a collection of individual lyrics guarantee you 40 or 50 pages even if you're a good poet probably shouldn't be there and as an editor that's where i've tried to push the authors i i I work with is towards cutting 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 until you have that core group of poems that will make a mediocre book worth reading but without all the dross, it's not a mediocre book. It's a really good book. Because that's the really unfortunate thing about including weak poems alongside stronger ones is that it, it, it weakens in the reader's experience of the book. It weakens the stronger ones as well. It dilutes the, the, the drink. I mentioned it before, but I, I was really impressed with the reference you made to King, King Lear. Oh, it's one of my all-time favorite, I guess I'll say books, but, you know, play. Mm-hmm. It, it's definitely my favorite Shakespeare play mm-hmm. and one of the touchstones of my, my, my personal canon. Yeah, and I suppose because it is, you're able to see, you know, have an insight into other works that resonate with King Lear because you bring it up several times in the book in a, and I think in a really impressive way to uh, illustrate what's going on with other well, it's, it's poems. A, it's a play I've read or seen so many times that it's rarely far from my mind anytime I'm engaged with a work of literature. So if I'm that much more likely to pick out a resonance between something and King Lear than I am between between that and, and a play or novel or poem that isn't part of my own mental furniture to that extent. You also, just uh, talking about Lear and it being a touchstone, it seems like any poet that you really like, you uh, compare to John Clare. Well, it, it's not necessarily any poet that I like I compare to John Clare. Is that because John Clare is such a, uh, such a, a key poet in my canon, I am drawn to poets that have affinities to John Clare. And it's very interesting what kind of a range of poets have had affinities to John Clare. John Ashbery, huge John Clare fan. Lisa Robertson, a huge John Clare fan. These are not the the people you would immediately think of. And that's one of the fascinating things about the complexity of John Clare is that, you know, he gets billed as this uh, kind of poet of simple rural description, this peasant who, who happened to have a gift that was part and parcel of, of mental illness he suffered and all of this sort of stuff. But the range of appeal that his work has had is really fascinating to me. You know, from, from Heaney to Ashbury to all these are, you know, I'm also a huge Elizabeth Bishop fan and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I've, I've looked, I've done a lot of work on Bishop and I've looked in vain to find a particular 
connection between Bishop and Clare. And to me, there's a, there's a strong affinity. They're both poets who are uh, very strongly uh, descriptive. That's right. And you t- uh, this is something that you detest, and that is philosophizing. And it's very getting, hard getting, to do well. Getting away from yeah, getting away from the dis- just the yeah. plain description, right? Yeah, and part of part of why I don't like that is I feel that it's uh, it's what Keats described as a poem having a palpable design upon the reader. If, when a poet starts to bloviate about ideas, uh, you're straying more into the territory of telling a reader what you think and what they should think, rather than presenting something that makes them think. And you're giving him too much information. Yeah. It, it, the, the really successful poetry, to me, is you know makes you, to some extent, forget that you're being communicated to via language by another person. And I know a lot of people have a lot of time for more philosophical poetry. So this is very much a personal preference issue for me. But uh, I just find I'm rarely, rarely enraptured by such work. There are poets who do some really interesting... Like John Smith is a poet I I really love, and, and his work tends to be... He's from uh, PEI, isn't he, or not, not, not originally, but he's established himself there and has been there for a long time, yeah. In PEI, this distinction matters, right? <laughs> for sure. He'll never be part of this. <laughs> but he, he has certainly made himself a part. Um, and, and even PEI is a little less conservative than it used to be in that, in that regard. But, but one of the things I think that really works with John's work is that you never quite know when he's being playful, when he's being serious, when he's leading you down a blind alley, and you know, mm-hmm. when he's being perfectly sincere. And I think it's that, that rhetorical ambiguity in his work works really well. But when, when the rhetoric is less ambiguous, well, it's more rhetoric and less poetry to me. And rhetoric is great. I love rhetoric, but I don't love it in poems, by and large, if it's merely rhetoric. So we've got John Clare... The book really does tell us who you who you really like and who you really don't like. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't have to it's ask an incomplete that question. picture. Yeah. Uh, typically, that's one that I like to ask: is who do you, for someone who's interested in poetry, who do you think is really great, so that they don't waste their time reading all the books that you've read, and and can get to something that's uh, that, yeah. that's really worth worth the time. Well, I, I think I think uh, a poet that you're least likely to waste a lot of time finding the great poems for in that regard for me is Bishop, mm-hmm. uh, in large measure because she was a ruthless self-critic, mm-hmm. and her oeuvre is so slim. Her collected poems, considering how long she lived and how, how long she was a poet, uh, is, is incredibly slim. And that's very, very rare. Mostly you see, probably particularly with male poets, you know, you look at Ted Hughes, uh, mm. whose best poems I love, Me but his collected, his collected poems is a yeah. fucking doorstopper. And there's a lot of crap in it, right? So, you know, it, it, if, you're, if you're looking for an entry point into poets that I would recommend, I think Bishop's a perfect place to start. But Claire's another person, extremely raggedly uneven. And mm. the, the collected works is... A mass. He was. He was a graphomaniac, among other things. You know, he just wrote constantly. But, uh, so that's me, I think. That's that is you. Yeah, we we'll just wait for that and let you think about a couple of Canadian. Like I, I, I love Bruce Taylor. Bruce, I, I just love reading his stuff. It's 
Bruce you, is one of my favorites. There's a humor in it that just makes it... Uh... Humor and, and brilliance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. he... Uh, mm-hmm. a, a, a understated brilliance. He's, yeah. yeah he... Anyone else? In terms of contemporary Canadian work? Yeah. Well, I mean, we've already touched on Van Turen. That's and that's another poet whose whose body of work is slim. It's really easy to get a get a sense of the entire output of Van Turen. Irving Leighton uh, has been for a long time one of my favorites, but uh, he's hugely uneven, especially later in his career. He, you know, he produced so much crappy rhetoric. Anyone else that uh, you think deserves? Attention? I really, I really love Pat Warner's work. Uh, and had the opportunity to edit his most recent collection, uh, and he was he was terrific to work with. He's uh, he's got a, a, a really original sensibility in his work, um, and, and also uh, an adv- a venturesomeness. He'll try almost anything, and mm-hmm. and is often successful mm-hmm. as a poet, uh, whether it's you know straightforward description or surrealism or you know he'll. he'll Play around, and I and I like poets who don't pigeonhole themselves. Mm-hmm. And he's a he's a great example of a poet who doesn't pigeonhole himself. I really like Lisa Robertson's work. I th- I hesitate to recommend Lisa Robertson broadly because I think it's her work is an acquired taste, and it is opaque in a lot of ways, and intentionally opaque. But once you once you kind of acculturate yourself to her idiom, it becomes clearer and clearer. I find. Can but you explain you, that or not? Well, I, I think by reading more and more of her books, which I did for a long essay, I, I wrote about her work, what she's saying becomes more obvious. If you take any excerpt of, of almost any book of hers, you go, hmm? <laughs> One of the things I like about Lisa Robertson's work is that it is very far outside of my comfort zone. It is not in the bishop neighborhood of of clear description, you Mm -hmm. know, limpid kind of. But it's no coincidence, I think, that she's also a big John Clare fan. (laughs) And I think she really stands head and shoulders above a lot of the sort of -of run-of-the-mill avant-garde types. Um, I think a lot of those people are trying to accomplish the sort of things that she does accomplish in her work. And part of the reason that she... she Part of the reason she gets there... It's very difficult to encapsulate what precisely does she captures in her work because it's it's kind of an extended meditative it's it's almost like I, I hate the word project, but her entire body of work is almost like this trajectory, this project, and unless you it's unparaphrasable. You can't say her book is about this and she talks about these subjects. It's more about the the language and the thought as a kind of textured mosaic than it is about themes. It's whatever and this is whatever one of the reasons this is one of the reasons that I, I hesitate to recommend her work because it's very hard to talk about it. <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> and it was one of the challenges that I had in, in writing and I, and I wrote about it uh, her, her recent book Cinema the Present particularly as a kind of modern retake on Wordsworth's prelude which I thought was kind of counterintuitive and kind of fun and the more I got into her work the more I realized that it was that there was actually some substance to it sorry it's what about the prelude it's her take on on the prelude this kind of autobiographical long poem that sets out the movements of the poet's mind 
Hermine <laughs> or Wordsworth? Hers. Um, okay. And that's why it's very, very different from the prelude in its particulars. Uh, in its arc, in its direction, it's similar to the prelude. And that's, and, that's and your thesis? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the my team. idea. Okay. <laughs> I hadn't encountered it previously, but the more I got into it and the more I looked at um, uh, other poets that she's kind of close to contemporaneously, uh, and the more I found actual references to Wordsworth, Wordsworth in her own work, the more I was like, yeah, this is actually happening here, and it's very fascinating. And that's one of the reasons that I think that, that Robertson is, is much more interesting than a lot of other avant-garde, quote-unquote, poets, yeah. is that her work is very much rooted in a canon that is very much rejected by a lot of others. Uh, she's, she doesn't have an unproblematic relationship with the canon. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. people like Virgil, people like Wordsworth. She takes it seriously, and she she works from it rather she than just it. rather than just throwing it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. She's but she's, she's a, just won a big award a, too. Has she? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. I think it's. But she's it's... extremely smart. Yeah. Extremely smart. Mm. And it's easy to, to, if if you have a certain prejudice against avant-garde poetry, to, to look at it and go, ah, oh, it's just more of that incomprehensible garble garble. But the, if you if you can suspend that and, and take it seriously, and but it does really involve a serious investment in reading all of her books. You can't just like read one and and properly get what's going on in, <laughs> in Lisa Robertson's. Uh, and that's, yeah. yeah. What about so yourself? A, when was the your latest book, some published? Fifteen? Yeah, twenty fifteen. Yeah. Who published that? Biblioasis. Are you working on anything now? I am working piecemeal on a longer poem right now. That's the first poem in a while that I've written. Yeah. I've written a few lyrics spaced out with months between them. What, what about criticism? That's what criticism. No, that's what I'm really after. No, I'm not actually. I I have I've alluded to it during this conversation. I have written a number of essays that didn't find a home in career limiting moves, not because I didn't think they were good enough, but because they were very much in a different vein from the work in there. That work I will eventually get around to assembling and editing and and publishing as a book. Uh, the title that I have in mind for it is Correspondences. Longer, longer, more analytical essays uh, on some on prose fiction as well as on poets, and uh, I've published these pieces here and there over the years. Some of them I wrote in grad school. <laughs> I'm I'm editing these days. That's that's been my outlet for uh, for kind of critical thinking. Mm -hmm. Has been uh, bringing it to bear on other people's books prior to publication, but that's all I really have time for these days because full-time work and union work and parenting and husbanding and uh, landlording and all of the things one does with one's life have kind of filled up my, my calendar. So. Well, hopefully you can uh, s squeeze in a bit more uh, criticism for us uh, fans I, of, uh, of your work. I, I, thank you, Nigel. I, I'm aiming to uh, retire uh, at 55, which is only 13 and a half years away. So, <laughs> okay. Well, I might at one time that seemed like an eternity to me, but <laughs> yeah. okay. Well, we'll uh, we look, we'll look forward to that. To Cheers. That. Zach Wells is the author of the poetry collections Unsettled, Track and Trace, and Some, Some. and of course this. 
very entertaining collection of uh, interviews, rejoinders, essays, and reviews, career-limiting moves. Uh, thanks very much for your time. Uh, thank you, Nigel.